0: This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3514 for Thursday the 20th of January 2022. Today's show is entitled, Hacking Stories, Soft Drink. It is hosted by Operator, and is about 21 minutes long, and carries an explicit flag. The summary is, I talk about old Pentast stories. And welcome to another episode of Hacker Public Radio with your host. Op. Today, I'll be talking about uh, stories, hacker stories again. This one's again from way far back. A lot of these are way far back, so the order of events may not be right. There might be a mix and match between the two, but in general, I can remember which engagements aligned with which activities in general. Anyway, this was about a big soft drink manufacturer or distributor, whatever, and was with a new guy who was on our team, pretty green, smart guy, you know, really self-motivated and started getting into his own, finding his own groove pretty quickly after one or two assessments. So anyways, we get on site and usually we have a thing called uh, kind of a kickoff meeting. So you get there, you get on site, maybe the manager's with you, key, you know, stakeholders within the meeting, attend that first meeting. And usually it's in the morning on the first day of actual testing, or maybe it's the day before, if you're lucky. But generally speaking, you just go there and you explain what your approach is and make everybody comfortable, establish points of contact if it's after hours, you know, maybe there's some other moving parts to that assessment. In general, it's it's pretty standard stuff. The key about this one is that I showed up on site, had my little USB ducky thing, which would give you a PowerShell payload. Well, even things like Windows Defender and stuff like that nowadays will pick all that up or any EDR tool will pick most of that up. The simple stuff. But this was before kind of the heyday of pen testing where you didn't have to roll your own thing. You just go on GitHub and download something, and it would work. So anyways, I had this USB key that would give you a shell via physical access. So somebody left their workstation unlocked. You plug the key in, and you get a shell to wherever you want. Now, these were shells were set up internally. So I had a host on my laptop already plugged into the network on, like, the local LAN or whatever because they don't have any protection against monitoring, which means... I'll go back a little bit. Port monitoring basically prevents someone from just arbitrarily plugging a device in the network. So with that said, it's generally you don't see it at all. If you do see it, it's usually not implemented correctly. What should happen is you should have a certificate for each host, and that certificate should be validated when they connect to the network. What ends up happening is most of the time it's a MAC address filtering thing where all you have to do is pretty much plug the device in you want to clone, listen to the packets for it to call out home and say, hey, I've been disconnected to the internet. Here's my MAC address, you know, server, give me an IP address. And the server says, oh, that's you, this is the guy, and puts you on the network. Well, if you have physical access, you're just going to physically plug in the device that's supposed to be there and emulate that device. Now, there's some small things you can do within, like, I think, deep packet inspection and some other stuff outside of basic security and MAC address filtering that you can kind of fingerprint and match that fingerprint to A device, but in general, you don't see that either. I haven't seen it well implemented. So, generally, you can take a just desk phone, for example, and say, Hey, I'm a desk phone and end up on the network through MAC address filtering. So, anyways, long story short, the idea is that you can, you know, just plug in any device into the network and then you're good to go. And you set up that as a listening server to listen out for what they call beacons. So, you set up a beacon and it could be anything, it could be a piece of program or a snippet of one programming language or whatever, and that that thing phones home and establishes a, a command and control CNC server, whatever. Anyways, I'm going the long winded way of kind of explaining how basic, um, you know, remote stuff works. Anyways, this particular lady had gotten up from her desk to go to this kickoff meeting, and while she was doing that, of course, I said, well, she's as good a person as any. Um, could have been anybody. Could have been somebody else. I walked by their office with their screen, but they didn't lock their screen. And a lot of the screen title idols are somewhere around 60 seconds. And some of my payloads actually bypass that by just keeping the system idle. So if I do pop a shell on a box, they actually have to lock their physical workstation. It won't just unlock automatically. It'll stay open. So even if I want to come back later, that little script runs in the background to keep the server, the, the workstation live and presses the F22 button every time. 59 seconds to make sure that the system stays on. So even if they do go to the bathroom and think that their system is going to be locked in 60 seconds, it's not going to be looking still get back on there if I need to reestablish persistence or run some other something as an escalated user and I don't have the rights, the correct rights. So anyway, she gets up, walks off. I drop my payload. I get my shell. So before we even have a kickoff meeting, I've already got a shell on the box, which is not generally, you know, it's kind of not necessarily unfair, but... With that said, it's not like she was going to walk her workstation because I was there anyways, because she knew I was there. So anyways, before we even start testing, essentially, I've got a shell via physical access, of course. With that, it's kind of funny. The other part is I brought lockpick set, and I had been a little bit into LockSport, just from a security standpoint, identifying weak points in different engagements and saying, hey, you know, you have, I see a lot of double doors that are, for whatever reason, not secured. A lot of times it's multi-tenant environments where they've leased out uh, that that area to a person. So they'll, a, a person or a group, a company. But you see it a lot more within institutions that have a multi-tenant environment. And you also see it a lot more with like a double doors. So there'll be external doors, you know, secure, whatever. If they got RFID, they can't get in. Um, but after that, you'll see a lot of times you'll have big gaps in the doors where you can just almost stick a finger in the door and unlock it. In some cases, you know, you can do some other shenanigans to get the door open. But a lot of times the, you'll see these super loose doors where you can just shove something in the door, credit card or piece of metal or whatever, and then pop, pop it in. So I had, I had looked around, walked around a little bit and found a kind of a maintenance closet or maintenance area and this place didn't have much in there but it was a nice quiet place for us to do any kind of shenanigans if we wanted to do something that we didn't want anybody to physically see us doing but other than that there wasn't anything of value in there Saw a briefcase and it's a little like leather style briefcase and opened it up and there was a usb stick in there i said oh there might be something interesting on here of course popped it in and there wasn't anything interesting i mean i wouldn't have been surprised had there be something pretty cool on there but there wasn't it was like maps to the to the building or something which some people would find sensitive but generally speaking like you know this isn't like the movies where they download maps from the building and use that to like crawl in through the gutters or what do you call it the the ventilation system from like minority report or whatever. It was a bond. Anyways so there's nothing nothing not much there. And meanwhile the guy I'm with who's pretty green, smart kid, he seemed pretty shy at first. But eventually he kind of started opening up and he was kind of freaking out and being like, oh, my God, you know, we're we're doing this thing. We're doing that thing. And it's like, this is your job. You'll learn to get used to it and it'll be comfortable after a while. Just relax. Pretend like you belong there. Put yourself in their shoes and just pretend that you're supposed to be there. That kind of helps. So we're doing some initial testing and we've gotten some credentials at some point for a couple of credentials for something. And we're using those credentials. So when you, I've probably talked about this before, but if you have access to a Windows box back then, a little bit less nowadays, you would be able to dump the hashes. And being able to dump those hashes, you can take those hashes and pass them around to other places without having the actual password. So when computers negotiate SMB v1 days, which there's still SMB v1 everywhere, when you authenticate to another computer in Windows, if you have that hash, you don't necessarily need the password to access that system. So if you're able to dump the hashes of that system, you can potentially, in most cases, use those hashes, especially if they're the same local administrator password, you can use those hashes somewhere else. So there's a thing within Windows called LAPS, L-A-P-S, local administrator password service, and that will kind of help with that stuff. It'll rotate out the local admin password based on some magic and it will keep you from having everybody having the same local admin password. So anyways, when you don't see laps, you know that you can do a thing called password spraying. So traditionally, if I were to try to log in, you know, 10,000 times with your account, it's going to lock it out after the first 3, 6 attempts, whatever. With password spraying, you're essentially taking one password and using that against thousands of accounts. So the idea is you won't be detected by simple password blocking mechanism. So if there's 50,000 accounts, you try the password on all 50,000 accounts, and you try the next password on all 50,000 accounts, you'll never get locked out because you know the timeout for those is between. Each password is going to be so few and far between. It'll only show that you're trying my password every minute or two minutes or whatever. So that's what you traditionally would do during these assessments. When you don't have a lot of time, you just get credentials, you spray, and then you pivot, get credentials, you spray, and you pivot until you get local administrator, and then from that, you want to get domain administrator. So anyways, I'm using Metasploit. This is way back, and that, you can use that to password spray a bunch of accounts at once. So he's relatively green to that piece of software, and I'm kind of half doing my thing. I'm kind of doing two things at once, and I'm kind of t- trying to help him. At, so I'm kind of doing three things at once. I'm kind of keeping an eye on him, seeing if he has any questions, trying to make do nine notes, and trying to do scans and performing my testing all kind of at the same time, which in hindsight, that should be something that should be done kind of one at a time. Whereas I do my work and then I, you know, maybe pause for some brief moment and then shoulder surf him for a little while and show him how to do certain things and, and then go from there. Um, you're, you kind of don't want to let someone just go willy nilly on a corporate network and not shoulder surf them at least the first few few times to let them know, OK, here's. What you need to be aware of. Here's what you need to not do. Here's the thing. You know, here's the five things that you shouldn't do, um, outside of just standard scoping limitations, but just for for lack of better term, just etiquette within networks nowadays. So I have him set up this password spraying tool, and unfortunately, I set it up incorrectly where it would do the opposite. It would kind of spray those accounts with a bunch of passwords, and of course, the wrong passwords. So. Not only was it a bunch of accounts, it was a wrong password, which will trigger a lockout. So what ended up happening is, I don't know how it happened. I think maybe I wasn't setting up the tool right or something, and it went and locked out every single user within Active Directory. Now, I'll link a script that basically fixes all this for you in the show notes. Hopefully I still have it. I may not have it. But it basically downloads the admin module for Windows automatically, and then it will perform a, a check against the Active Directory and say, okay, you know, with your credentials, I'm going to try to unlock every single account out with one simple three or four line script in PowerShell. So, you know, we're in the middle of this. We don't realize anything bad is happening. And in the background, we're in a different room. Sometimes you're in a cubicle area where you can literally hear things failing. <laughs> and uh, you start hearing about people complaining about being able to log in or whatever you know, it's happened a handful of times, but one of the times that it did happen is is I was around cubicles and I could hear people literally talking about, you know, getting locked out and things like that. So it's not a fun thing to happen because, you know, you obviously know you're impacting people in real world. So anyway, some, some time goes by and the main security guy, our lead security guy on the client side comes in and he proceeds to pop his head in and say, you know, look, we, I don't know what you guys are doing you know, but all our accounts are locked out. And of course, I told him to stop immediately. And he seems kind of perplexed and is, is confused as to, you know, why could this have happened? Why could a single person essentially halt our entire company? Because, you know, getting locked out wouldn't necessarily think of it as a denial of service, but essentially that's what it is, availability. You're attacking the availability of a platform, and that is authentication. So if a particular user were to be really mean, they would get a list of all your external login names. Now, that's why a lot of companies, their email addresses are different than their login because what happens and can happen is that if somebody wants to do a denial of service against your company, they can basically brute force every single username with a bunch of passwords and block everyone's account out at the entire company if they have a company username list or an email list that's tied to that, that username. So a lot of times within bigger enterprises, you'll have... Your email address and your username will be different than your email address on purpose because people used to use their email address as their username or, you know, the at whatever.com, everything before that. And we started having instances where availability was impacted because some clown would get a dump of all the usernames at your company and they were perceived to, you know, and try to pack into something and lock everybody's account out or lock a large swath of accounts out. So with that said, you know, he comes in, like I was locking everything out. I kind of backtrack and, you know, I take full responsibility for anything like that. And I say, you know, he's he's green. I, I kind of told him what to do. It's all on me. You know, don't worry. I know, you know, I'm the one that made the mistake. I wasn't making sure that, you know, we were we were doing the right things. And he, he took it very well. Um, you know, he said, well, this is actually a good finding because, you know, if one user can lock out all of our accounts and essentially stop the business, then that means that we should probably look at fixing that. And at some point in time, I think this was before the massive amount of unlocking, locking out accounts. We had, or I had had a session with a specific computer. And I told the security guy, I said, you know, I know you use, I don't know if they were using something along the lines with Snort or whatever, one of those Firewatch or Fire something or other, or one of those network based deals. Anyways, it looks at network traffic and maybe it has an endpoint piece on it. But I don't think this had an endpoint. It was, a network tool that would tell you, you know, if there's any shells going on, things like that. I think I actually think it was car- maybe Carbon Black or or something like that, where they actually had endpoint visibility. You could see what programs were running. So I told him to bring his tool up and say, you know, hey, here's your kind of. I guess it wasn't really an EDR, but it was a endpoint visibility security tool. I said, hey, bring up your your security thing, and here's the host name, and tell me, make sure that we can't that you can't see my shell. And he says, he said, can't? I'm like, yes. Make sure that you can't see my shell. I want to make sure that my shell is hidden from this security tool. And, of course, you know, it was plain Jane, you know, regular Metasploit reverse payload thing. So, you know, he brings up the host name, looks at the thing, looks at the tree view, and like, no, I don't see anything out of the ordinary here. I'm like, okay, good. Well, you know, that's one of the findings we can take ahead and say, you know, you guys, you know, need to be aware that. Just because you think you have visibility into something, and it, there's some missing pieces there, but this was kind of way before EDR and injecting process injection and all that stuff was being tracked and monitored. So you just ended up with like Notepad, and it's like, okay, they're running Notepad, but why did Notepad all of a sudden spawn, you know, a command shell? So there wasn't that there wasn't that visibility into kind of pivoting aspects type of thing. So we. Ended up getting from there it was, you know, local admin credentials, I'm sure that we use somewhere else. Usually it's a service account for monitoring of all things. So a lot of servers, Windows servers especially, will have some kind of monitoring access aspect of it, SCCM, whatever. And what can happen sometimes is these systems can be taken over. Those local credentials can be used to for whatever reason those local our local credentials are cached or they're the same on every system. And then you can pivot to other systems. So you just pivot, dump credentials, pivot, dump credentials, and then eventually you find Domain Administrator or an account that has access to the domain admin computer, and then you can pivot from there and create your own uh, domain admin. I will say if you do have Domain AD, there's a bunch of basic, simple stuff that will help slow that process down. And I don't remember the website, but it was like ADSecurity.org. It's like one guy and he's like the only handful of guys that actually, you know, understands AD from a security standpoint. I want to say it's not AD security at work. It's some other, I think it's pretty much some other guy. Anyways, it's like Active Directory something or other guy. And anyways, there's some guides in there that will help slow down these types of attacks. So if somebody does get access to a domain administrator, they can't just arbitrarily create a domain admin account they actually have to have credentials to the domain ad domain controller then they have to pivot to that domain controller and then they can add credentials to that account so if they can't get to the domain controller because of firewalling or whatever then they have a domain admin account but they can't create a dom- their own domain admin account because that user is not you know set up uh, to be able to create account from without having been on the actual Domain, uh, domain server, whatever. Anyways, it's a bit of a tangent, but there's there's a lot of Active Directory security guides out there. There's a million things you can do. So much with just Group Policy objects and app whitelisting within Windows, and people don't really realize that if you really understand AD, you don't really need a whole lot of tools. If you understand Group Policy objects and security around all of them, you can create. Basic stuff like Word Pad and you know Microsoft Word shouldn't be dropping binaries or executing executables. Like that's just not something that's supposed to happen. So like if you know when Word or Excel all of a sudden runs an executable, that's not something you want. And you can turn that on within side of Word and Microsoft products to say okay, just basic stuff. And within AD, AD security and Group Policy objects, there's so many things you can turn on that will not impact business. That will help with that space. Anythings. Um, I'll see if I can remember to try to find the link and put it in the show notes for that. Uh, Let's see what else we got here. Other than that, I was on my way out the door. And generally the last day, I'll try to clean up my tracks and make sure that whatever I left behind, I cleaned up after. So I'm not leaving like shells and users and accounts all over the place. So I'll usually have like a little note that I'll print out or usually just write as best I can because my handwriting is terrible. I would write, you know, here's the domain admin account proving that I, you know, got domain admin, blah, blah, blah. If you want to remove it on my way out the door, feel free. You know, we have our screenshots and, and all that stuff. So as as I'm kind of out the door, I hear a guy talking about Plex, which back then Plex was still pretty pretty new. It's a kind of build your own TiVo, if you remember TiVo days. But it's essentially like build your own streaming media service and you can share between box to box. So if I have a server, you have a server, we can share each other's server and see each other's content and all that. So when I log in I can see all the people that I've shared my server with. So anyways, as I'm passing by, I hear hear him mention Plex and I kinda of peek my head over and I say, Oh, here's my email address if you wanna whatever and still to this day, I mean this is I don't know, fifteen years later, ten years later, I have an account still with his Flex account. He doesn't have a ton of stuff on there, you know. I'll look in there and rummage around, and see if anything interesting. But it's kind of a good, uh, interesting story. It's kind of, kind of on the highway out and established a relationship, sort of that I still utilize to this day. Anyways, that's pretty much it. The only other thing is I say that was free, free of this soft drink that was free, but a lot of them had caffeine in them, and I eventually found one that I thought didn't have caffeine in it. So I'm sitting here drinking it, drinking it, and then I realize after I've had like three cans of it that it's not just a it's not just a cocoa or coffee drink or whatever that's like not caffeinated or whatever it has like like caffeine inside of it too anyway so it ended up am making, making things almost as almost as bad as drinking a bunch of sodas. That's pretty much it for this one and uh, hopefully we'll have more coming down the pipe. I've got plenty of these that are more recent, but I'm trying to get the old ones out of the way so that I can you know so they don't start leaving my brain. anyways, have a good one. take it easy. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. Today's show was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hosting for HBR is kindly provided by anhonesthost.com. The Internet Archive and rsync.net. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.